0: What? All right, everyone. Welcome to CONCON, Episode 8. Uh CONCON is Consciousness Conversations. I'm DR. I'm Ben. Uh and we are joined today by a good friend of ours.
1: I'm Brian.
0: Yeah. And um so I'm gonna talk a little I'll talk a little bit about the reception we've gotten from the episodes that we've done so far. So we did a couple of initial episodes. We did several episodes from uh, the science of consciousness conference um, in uh, Tarmina, which was really fun. And so we've gotten some feedback now from folks. And I think uh, one of the interesting pieces, and by the way, if you would love to leave us more feedback, we'd love uh, comments. Uh, uh particularly on youtube that's kind of the easiest one for us um, so you can go to our, our channel on youtube if you're not if you're consuming this elsewhere um, and if you want the actual podcast and you are watching this on youtube you can go to concon.show. um so one of the big pieces of feedback was hey this is really great and really intense but there's like we maybe we need to take a few steps back and uh understand maybe why this is so interesting to you like like people are really Starting to get engaged with some of the content, but they want to understand some of the back, some of the deeper background, both in what is kind of driven Ben and I into our, our interest, and also you know maybe some of the more foundational stuff. And so Brian is one of these interested parties, uh, so he's got questions for us, and uh, and so we're going to kind of walk through I think some of you know what has motivated us around um, our consciousness interest, and then also you know kind of. What are some of the more foundational questions that maybe Ben and I breeze past because we have been talking about this for years?
2: <laughs> yeah, so Brian, you're the normie.
1: <laughs> I'm here to represent all the normies out there talking to you. Um, so, yeah, why don't you why don't you guys talk a little
0: bit about the conversation you had that kind of kicked this off of the the Camp Rainbow conversation?
2: Yeah, so Brian asked me uh, I think quite authentically, also Aaron, uh, our friend Aaron, like why, why do you care? And I was sort of um, a little stunned by that question. I, I think because in my eyes, this seems like just a imminently profound and important thing to think about all the time. <laughs> and then I thought about this and I thought, oh, I think I think that's like a very, uh, it's a cognitive bias that I have, given that I'm sort of... Have a temperament to be preoccupied with existential stuff all the time for someone who like is like what's the big deal I think there's there's a way in which you can answer this question in terms of sort of immediate term reasons why it could be a big deal and sort of medium term and long term reasons I think an immediate term reason I'm sort of borrowing I, I think from some content that Anil Seth has put out but it, an immediate reason is you have people uh, for whom you don't know if they're conscious or not there's like locked in syndrome things like that there's like is this person sort of quote unquote brain dead? Should we pull the plug on this person? Or are they? do they have a conscious inner self that is trying to communicate with the world? And maybe we would figure that out if we didn't pull the plug on them. So there's like a very immediate sort of like, we need to figure out what consciousness is to help uh, a subset of people who might be conscious in ways that we can't detect. So we need, we need a way at least to understand what consciousness is in the sense that we could detect it in people, like a consciousness detector. Um, this also, you know, depending on
0: which, we, which we are getting pretty good at. We've made a lot of progress in this.
2: But yeah, there are there are techniques, right? Um, you, you know, basically depending on sort of your system of ethics, you might also think that that kind of thing is important for sort of non-human. You want a non-human consciousness detector? Like, is it okay to uh, kill fish to eat them? Right. This sort of these sort of ethical questions, I think, hinge often on. Uh, sort of are these animals that we're killing conscious or not if they're not conscious like is their experience of pain meaningful at all right there's negative stimulus and then there's pain right can they suffer can they suffer like we can suffer can they suffer to the same degree that we can suffer and does do these sort of considerations confer moral status right so I think those are sort of immediate term why do we care about consciousness I think defining it allows us to detect and measure it And those have immediate ramifications.
1: Is this your primary concern or is this just one, I was going to (laughs) say one, one helpful use of thinking about consciousness versus I think one of the things that kind of kicked it off was to understand like, why, why do you care about this topic specifically?
2: Yeah, I think there's something, uh, so I think in the first episode, we talked about Nagel's, like, what what is it like to be a bat? There's something inherently spooky about consciousness, and maybe not everybody thinks it's spooky, but I think it's spooky. You know, I'm a scientist. I think in terms of sort of, like, empirical evidence, uh, hypotheses that can be, uh, you can form experiments around hypotheses to test them, and the data will come back, and it'll either say, hey, your hypothesis is on the right track, or your hypothesis is wrong, right? And it seems there's something weird about that feeling of consciousness, the redness of an apple, that doesn't lend itself to the design of an experiment. Like, I can't really design an experiment to test if you're conscious. It's sort of like I'm trapped in my own conscious skull, and I have to just assume because you behave similar to me. But then again, you're not really interested in some, you know, these sort of existential questions. So maybe you aren't conscious. Maybe only conscious people care about consciousness, right? So, But you end up in these sort of like weird sort of, um, you know, questions that don't seem to lend themselves to typical scientific endeavor. Yeah. And I feel like science is the way towards truth, like in my mind. And so there seems to be an inherent conflict. So I have an intense existential cognitive dissonance. Around the spookiness of consciousness, for me, I think that's the main motivating thing but there, there's other there's other stuff too that I'm also very interested in, but I, I think that is the primary mover for me
0: so but, Ben, I think you should slide in a little bit I think you're kind of like you moved a little bit out of the frame, yeah, and maybe Brian, you should slide over a little bit too so we're yeah
1: okay so your your primary driver is to blend the like theories of consciousness with the science that you're comfortable and used to.
2: I want to, re- I want to reconcile this issue that it doesn't seem like, um, you know, so, so let, I guess let's dive slightly deeper. So what is it like to be a bat? A bat has echolocation, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a mammal and it's somewhat close to us genetically. Like we don't have that sense. And so it is sort of, uh, has a perception of the world. We assume and sort of, uh, you know, this sort of qualitative uh, version of the exterior world inside its interior mind. And it seems impossible to fathom what that could be like. In a very similar way, I think maybe a more down to earth example would be like trying to describe color to a blind person. You have to do it by like metaphor and you just know that there's no way or even a colorblind person trying to sort of tell them about that color that they can't see. Right. Like it, it seems impossible. Right. Yeah. Is my red. your red. Right. These seem like impossible questions. And that's really tough for me as a scientist who wants to use science to know about the world. Like there seems to be a blocker there. And I want to figure out why that blocker is there and if it can dissipate, if we're sort of, maybe we're just framing everything wrong. Maybe there's sort of a uh, assumption inherent yeah. and even how we're framing this, these problems that would dissipate if we, oh, if we just looked at it from a slightly different angle. Right. These are the kind of things that drive me.
0: Okay. And I I think for me, um, I talked about this a little bit in the previous one, but the, my, I was a journalism student in college and worked for a newspaper for a while. And I loved being a reporter and the part of that I loved, I liked being a reporter much more than I liked being a writer. And I loved like learning stories and, and understanding what motivated people. And then I took an econ class and it kind of knocked my socks off and I kind of became an econ double major because it felt like this hidden way in which the world was operated that people didn't talk about, you know, that they were motivated by these kind of like hidden things. And I got really into like behavioral economics. Um, there's a version of me that would have loved to have done a Ph.D. with like the Freakonomics guys or Dan Ariely. Um Recently discredited, by the way. I don't know if you've been hearing about the Danny Rayleigh stuff. Very sad, because I'm a big fan of his. Um, But uh, this idea that, you know, one of Danny Rayleigh's books is, like, predictably irrational. That we are not just irrational, but irrational in very specific ways. And so it's sort of like, you know, my fundamental question is, like, why do we do the things that we do? Which ends up being, why do we have the stories that we have about ourselves and about the world? which gets you very quickly into sort of, like, why why does our brain create and maintain stories? And for me, particularly, it's very tied to the religious stuff of my upbringing of, like, I held on to this narrative about the world for 30 years that to me now feels, you know, not, like, deeply wrong. Like, how—and and and I was, like, kind of the same person in a lot of ways at that time. How was I able to sort of— hold on to and reconcile this. And in a lot of ways I wasn't, that's what kind of let me out. But how was I able to hold on to that narrative that, you know, many friends and family still do um, in a world that feels so to me, contradictory to that idea. So, so it's like understanding the, the operation of the mind to me is like highly practical. It's not just a scientific thing. It's like, how are people living their lives every day in this world and, and kind of acting in such strange and irrational Sometimes predictably rational ways, um, and so like understanding the subsystems of how our consciousness works to me is like useful on a day to day basis. Like, uh, and we can talk about some examples. I was thinking about some of those as we were as I was thinking about preparing for this of like what what are the practical applications of things that I've learned? Um, I think there's a lot of them.
1: Interesting. So with kind of both of. Your backstories and like why you're sort of digging into this. it it sounds like a lot of this is sort of based in like the operation and like neuroscience of how people's minds work and how you can like, you know specifically figure that out from a scientific perspective, but also from like the sociological side of things. So like what are in very simplistic terms to not, you know, deep dive, I'm sure other episodes of the podcast, which, I've seen a few, um, maybe go into this, but like, what are some of like the, the primary theories that you guys associate your kind of like, you know, initial beliefs with?
2: Well, I I'm a believer in sort of this, um, substrate independent theory. Not, not everyone subscribes to this, but I, I think that if you replaced neuron by neuron with a functionally equivalent, uh, let's say Silicon neuron, yeah. right. You, you eventually end up with a totally silicon brain. It's functionally equivalent. That thing is conscious. I think that consciousness is retained. I don't think at some point, like one tummy neuron switch to neuron switched to silicon uh, and then all of a sudden consciousness disappears. From that perspective, I think consciousness must just be computation. It's yeah. independent of the sort of actual like stuff that's doing the computation. And I think that drives me to a very specific set of uh, theories about what consciousness is or what it could be.
0: Okay. And and uh, just note that like nothing we'll say here, like Ben's just statement just now, might sound very scientific and grounded. It is like that's like a wildly provocative statement in the context of this conference that we just went to. There's like there's no. It's not like we were in sessions and you'd hear people saying like why, like totally opposite things of like oh no embodiment is the key to consciousness or like you know the iit folks will will say um n- no computer could ever be conscious but like a sheet of neurons grown in a lab is conscious you know which just seemed like some of these things which to me seem pretty pretty crazy and but it's but it's it's very paradigm dependent like once you have this one this paradigm you're like okay uh, and and i think you kind of, to, in my mind, you really just have to lay your cards on the table like Ben's saying. It's like, no, this is kind of what I think, and then be open to changing that later.
2: Yeah, I think actually another good distinction that would be very provocative at this conference, but that we sort of take for granted, is that I think that there is an evolutionary, uh, ev- evolutionary ad- advantage yes. to being conscious. <laughs> um, a lot of people think it's like this like, spooky uh, pixie dust that you sprinkle on top of something that already can thrive in the natural world, like from an evolutionary perspective. But, but I think actually consciousness itself is evolutionarily advantageous.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I was actually going when, uh, I was going through some of my old content and I'd written this article on medium when I first like started taking time off to, to research and it was like about what I was, why I was interested in it. And this was one of the reasons is that, uh, and I had a quote from Yuval Harari and then another quote from the show, um, true detective. Have you seen true
1: detective? Maybe like the first season.
0: Yes. In the first season, there's this, there's a, a, a big bit about like evolution and consciousness and, uh, Matthew McConaughey's character is basically like evolution took a step too far. And like, we should just like hold hands and like walk into the ocean and kill ourselves because we were like destroying the planet. And like, you know, we're, we're, we're astray. And in this sort of idea that like, this us thinking in the way that we exist is like somehow bad or broken or or you know weird or like not not fruitful and i'm like no this is like we're the most successful species on this planet i mean you could i guess measure that in different ways but to me that seems to be the case and we're also the most conscious one and like that's not a coincidence in my opinion like this is very it's very useful
1: that i mean intuitively makes a lot of sense so with hearing that like those types of theories um, did not necessarily bode well for this conference that you guys went to. (laughs) (laughs) Why? I mean, there's a couple directions we could kind of take this and I'll sort of leave it up to you to to maybe either answer all the questions or like pick ones very specific for what you think would be good. But like the, uh, you know, the little I know about it uh, and sort of from what I've talked to you guys with, A, why would people necessarily not believe that and what are some of the theories against it. But then also like um, maybe between both of you, I'm also kind of curious where the personal theories kind of differ well, and where you guys kind of split between your beliefs. Let
0: me, let me back up one step and say that there is, there is a little bit of consensus about one of the things that people are looking for. So following the discovery of DNA, people were like, Oh, Oh, this is the fucking playbook of life. We've unlocked like how organisms are made. That's incredible. And the consciousness equivalent of this is what people call NCC, the neural correlates of consciousness. And so I would say broadly, this seems to be an endeavor that most people are interested in. In fact, there was a bet that David Chalmers made with Christoph Koch, I think, and they just, it was 20, 20 years or something ago and they had like bet a bottle of wine that like we would have figured it out within twenty years, and they just it, twenty years just came up, and so like Chalmers won, and they made a new bet. I forget, but like we haven't figured it out yet, right? But what people want to do is look in like an EEG or terahertz, uh, <laughs> whatever they're doing now to try and figure yeah, and microtubules, <laughs> yeah, and they could sort of like in the same way you can say this person is going to have blue eyes because they have this gene. They want to look at something that's happening in your brain and see that oh you're thinking about a purple elephant right like that's the thing that is in, in your in your state of consciousness and that is like still mostly a mystery
2: well w- maybe I'd slightly tweak that explanation because it's not it's not enough to say you're thinking about a purple elephant I mean we actually have that now with these deep learning models it's more like you're experiencing the quality of the purpleness of the elephantness of the you know the vision you know it's like the subjective experiential aspect of it, uh, not the fact that you could just sort of predict what people were thinking. Yeah.
1: Right? Well, because if, if it's hearing that that's what they're sort of looking for, I mean, it kind of sounds like they're doing what you're talking about, where it's like they're treating the mind like a computer and being like, if you have all of these connections, yeah. you're getting this. Um, but it's it's one step further saying that it's like the experience and how you can define that.
2: I mean, it, it's, I, I feel like the distinction does start to break down upon close examination. This is one of my issues with people sort of poo-pooing the neural correlates of consciousness. I think it's very useful to study, for example, how um, anesthesia works, right? As you sort of dip in and out of conscious perception with like anesthesia, to me, there's something interesting that you could glean from that about how consciousness works. Some people would say, no, that's not really, that's just a neural correlate. I think also you have issues of like the universe is con- consciousness is the thing the universe is and everything is sort of a, an image of that, right? Or you have people say, oh, the pan- panpsychism is, is the deal. Like every atom has a unit of consciousness and it all builds up together. I think those groups also are sort of against this idea of looking for neural correlates because they say like, w- what would that even mean? The like consciousness is everywhere, you know, like it, it's sort of this emergent thing that you build up. Little units of into bigger units, and then you have this emergent like you.
1: That sounds and- like crazy shit. Uh- <laughs>
2: well, and
0: we we talked about this a little bit previously with Anil Seth, um, but he he talks about you know there's this like hard problem and easy problem of consciousness, which we don't have to get into. But he like the hard problem is basically like why should we be conscious at all? And he's like the real problem of consciousness is. These like smaller bits kind of 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 the conscious experience and that he he draws this really interesting analogy of like it used to be that people would really debate in a similar fashion what was alive and what wasn't like what makes something alive. And it's like this is pretty magical at one point you're a human and your body's functioning and you're alive and then the next minute you're dead in this very binary fashion and what kind of like constitutes that difference, right? Some like vital force and whatever. And, and that debate was never really resolved. It just kind of melted away as we understood all of the underlying systems. And I think that is, you know, the the pink elephant or the purple elephant is, is kind of an interesting thing because some of that actually can be detected. We can do it. We can see a lot of what's going on in people's brain scans. Um, it just like hasn't, it doesn't have that dna like satisfaction that people are looking for and it's also so transient you know your thoughts like dna is like persistent in your body for your whole life but like your thoughts come and go so quickly it's very hard to observe them and sort of like follow them in kind of a stream of consciousness way um but i think that we are like there's progress being made in all these fronts it's just not it's it's not there's not that like key in the lock that is like oh my god we, we get it and instead what's happening is people like the, the theories just keep proliferating like every year we like oh so my, my <laughs> we, I want to talk about this more on an episode at some point but so the same thing where Chalmers and um, Christoph Koch were t- t- uh, talking about the, the bet was they were announcing the results of this thing called the Templeton competition I don't know what it's called where they were they forced two different theories about consciousness to compete against each other and they decided on an uh, a experiment. And they're like, oh, if the experiment shows this, this theory is right. And if the experiment shows this, this theory is right. And can you guess what happened? Did I tell you about it? No. Uh, both sides claimed victory. <laughs> 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 it was general workspace theory and integrated information theory. It was just like, and, and you know, I looked at it. So um, I really want to try and get um, uh, this woman on the podcast who I spoke to, who I think worked on this. And and ask her kind of, but like like looking at the design of the experiment, they had a bunch of different things, and it was like, oh well, of course they, they created they they made enough different things that like things could kind of the water could get muddied and both sides could just claim victory. But this just seems to happen in this field all the time, so it's another reason why I think it's kind of interesting.
1: Okay, I want to take I want to take one step back, and I think I. So I I have a a decent understanding of maybe like, you know, why you guys are sort of into this, but I would also like to know what your individual theories are for like your, Mm. you know, your definition of consciousness for the normal people out there like me, who maybe don't have all of these like, you know, terms and conditions, but like hearing panpsychism and I, I think I kind of have an understanding of what that is, but like, you know, you talked about the fact that you could put, you know, neurons in silicone and like have that be conscious, like where... Where Where is your lines? What are your definitions? And sort of like what's where, – where does it start and end?
0: Yeah, and I, I will say – uh, Ben, you can go first, but I'll say like from a definitional standpoint, I find people use the term consciousness the way quasi-religious people use the term God. You know, they would be like, oh, my God, like I had this experience, and it was God. It's like, wait – What kind of god are you talking about it's like oh no i just like everything happens for a reason like people's definitions are so broad that it gets like slapped in all these different places and consciousness in the science realm gets slapped in a bunch of different places as well so like you have panpsychist people who are like there's some animating force in the universe well obviously that's true that's 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 consciousness and for them it's easier to think of the magic of our of our minds as indistinguishable from the magic of the universe um, and there's validity to that, right? And then you have consciousness, which is sort of like attention management from, a, from an animal. And then you have consciousness that looks more like a human. You have consciousness that could look more like, um, you know, a, an AI. And so people use this term in a super broad way. Interestingly, the only grad programs that you will find, the other, the other community that we don't really talk about much who uses this term a lot is like hippies. So if you get a PhD in consciousness studies from this like California Institute, you know, it's sort of like a... Well, actually, I don't know much about it, but like, there's a lot of people in that space that are like crystals and chakras, and you know, like if you if you're on if you're on um, Tinder and you're like l- you know people's profiles and they're like I'm into consciousness or whatever, probably they're not into the same stuff that we are. They're probably <laughs> crystals. They yeah, exactly. could be
2: crystals. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, what's so so? What's your what's your definition? Like well, if let's, I if let, I slip and go first. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, just just to piggyback on some of the things that were said, I think there's something interesting like um, in that everyone has an opinion on consciousness because you sort of live with it your entire life. Not every, you know, I'm a machine learning scientist. Not everybody has an opinion on topics in machine learning but everybody has an opinion on what consciousness
1: (laughs) could be. I think maybe nowadays people
2: all have an opinion (laughs) on (laughs) on machine learning. (laughs) But I think this this is why that the the word itself has sort of like horribly not, not horribly it been used in a multifaceted sort of way like that that people can't even agree on
1: I think that, you know, think about like... Wait, do you, do you guys each have like multiple ways that you would refer to like consciousness when you're talking about it? Like, do you need to define that? Or like, do you have kind of a pinned down version that, that you're...
2: It's funny. I think DR wrote a blog post talking about all the definitions of consciousness yeah. and the sort of different levels of abstraction that people apply to the different uh, definitions that they have.
1: Okay. You can find that blog post. Link in the comments.
2: Yeah. Yeah. D- <laughs> D-R.io. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway so let's think about like Descartes i think therefore i am right so you have this like founding who i
0: think that's the he's the origin of the term consciousness if i recall maybe not
2: well maybe maybe yeah. but i mean th- there is this idea that you have one brute fact that you can be sure of yeah. which is that you are conscious right? you're a conscious thinking person right and i think this will lead people astray <laughs> my <laughs> My personal opinion is that just because you, I'm not, okay, first of all, let me define a term, illusionist. Illusionists are people who think consciousness doesn't exist. They would deny consciousness as we know it. I'm not one of those people, but I'm, I'm actually, uh, somewhat partial to like the way that they talk about consciousness because I think that, sorry, does
1: illusionist mean that your perception of like your surroundings is just like an illusion or like what, what is What is that?
2: Basically, this idea that you have qualia is uh, a sort of a fake concept. Do you know what qualia I, I don't know
1: what qualia is. Yeah. Define right. that as well. Do <laughs> yeah, you want you to take, take the
2: qualia? qualia? I've,
0: I've heard the word, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Usually qualia is also a term that like if I'm, you know, we're at the conference and people started talking about qualia, I would like leave because it's the, the qualia people tend to be um, hard problem people where they're like, this is unsolvable and like the mystery of qualia. So qualia is the essence of experience. So if you're walking around, like imagine being a small child, right? You have no concept of the world, but you're looking around and you're awash with sensation. These sensations are qualia, right? And eventually those, those like aspects of qualia the the softness of a blanket you know the 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 nourishment of the milk that you're drinking the 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 color of the sky these things start to take shape and meaning and they sort of become a narrative that your life is based on right but those those qualia it's like why should you experience these at all and there's a there's a there's a an interesting distinction actually the nicholas humphreys we were talking about him um before humphrey um he did all these blindsight experiments with monkeys. So these, and, um, so the monkeys can't see anything using their mammalian brain, but they have an older, um, uh, uh, lizard brain basically that can see things. So we have two actually visual sensors, right? And the visual, the, 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 the older one is basically a frog. It's tongue just sort of like can like grab flies, right? And it's not thinking about it. It's very obviously not conscious of this, what's going on, versus the ape that is conscious. And they've done all these studies that kind of show that, right? So that's kind of like a way of thinking about this barrier of like the qualia means that you're experiencing something. You're extracting what's going on in your environment into some sort of internal narrator, a confabulator, whatever you want to call it. That's, that's like something that is experienced versus a machine that is doing that's a thermostat. It's like, oh, the temperature is this. I'm going to adjust to this. Your thermostat is not conscious. Think think
2: about like the Roomba, right? When the Roomba hits its bump sensor, it turns nine degrees and goes on. So it, but at what point does that sensor processing, that bump sensor, when does it feel the bump? Yeah. Right. You would say, well, the Roomba doesn't feel the bump and the thermostat doesn't feel the temperature. Right. But when does sensor processing become feeling? Right. Because what are we doing sort of with our skin? There's like very simple sort of sensory information. We're, we're turning on it. And at what point does that become the feeling of pain, the redness of an apple and so forth? And some people, yeah, I think, you know, DR sort of painted the picture of like people put qualia sort of on this pedestal where they presuppose that is impossible to explain. And you can't you can't talk to those people, the hard problem people. Um, because they sort of presuppose that there is no answer that we'll ever find for consciousness. And as I sort of started with, my main driver is to figure out and dissipate the tension between the sort of scientific endeavor and how that is run and the seemingly sort of like um, impenetrable like questions that you might ask about your unconscious experience. That all being said... I think that the sort of, you know, I think therefore I am thing. I mean, this is sort of, again, an artifact of evolution. I think what's going on, so long story short, I subscribe, I think, or I'm closest aligned to sort of a a mishmash of um, Mark Solm's ideas about sort of the feelings Like, where do feelings come from? A preponderance sort of, like, on this idea of, like, let's zone in on the feelings part. That seems like an integral thing, like, because it feels like something to suffer, right? So there's something with feelings there. And I think there's also something with attention there. So Michael Graziano from Princeton, he sort of has this attention schema theory where he says, basically, like, your conscious percepts are kind of like the dashboard of your car. And you're sort of scanning your own... Attention, sort of. It's like a metacognition where you're sort of understanding where you're, how you're attending to things, and that itself is sort of this like top level of like sort of a recursive chain, like a feedback loops. And because it's the top level, there's sort of nothing attending to it, so it just seems like it's sort of this spooky thing at the top. But it's really sort of a, you know this schema of how you are attending to stuff that is your own self awareness, and it has a spooky essence because nothing like if something could attend it that would be the conscious thing right like it's always the thing at the top that can't have more sort of loopback
1: and i'm gonna pretend that i have not read that book for a second uh about (laughs) attention schema theory but like you know let's take did you read it i did yeah oh nice um but for, for, uh, Wait, so I'm you're not a normie. I'm representing the normies, so I'm going to pretend <laughs> I haven't read that. That's like the one book of consciousness that I've read. Okay, there's maybe two, but I'm not going to say that. Um, So maybe define that a little bit better. So like like you know Doc for example, he's running around. He's paying attention to his his toys. Doc is Doc is Ben's cat. Um, and does does this schema fit into like you know how he's operating in the world like would you say that doc is so, conscious according to this
2: yeah doc, doc is definitely conscious according to this i mean and also we think we understand where the attention schema is in the brain Let's well wait it, like, i the guess frog,
1: though, so. maybe not maybe not doc according to attention schema theory specifically but maybe to your personal definition of like consciousness i still want to like try to figure out like where yeah. you guys lie
2: so, so let's consider the frog right so the frog um, um you know Sort of like a hardwired sort of like impulse driven like very simple if then behavioral system right it does have vision and it does have representations of its vision to do this processing to understand what is a fly as a fly detector but if you and i i'm going to get this slightly wrong but the gist is right if you sort of like take its visual cortex and sort of wire it upside down right it has a sort of internal map right of the environment it will if the fly is down there it will always shoot its tongue up there and this, they've they've done this.
0: This yeah, is like they, yeah, they, a real experiment. So yeah,
2: it doesn't have an extra sort of meta processing, a story, right? It's just reaching out and grabbing flies. But now imagine you added a new module into the frog, that sort of uh, scanned its own attention of like how it was shooting for flies, right? Now it has a story of like it can start to you know think things like, um, I'm hungry. I need to try harder to, to do this fly, or like I feel hungry and therefore I'm acting like this. So it's like stories about sort of its own attention and it it can model its own attention sort of at this meta level. And I think that is sort of like closer to how like, you know, Doc and the Million Brain would work, right? He's got all the things that the frog has, but then he has this extra stuff to sort of monitor how he's monitoring things, right? He has that dashboard. It's not just the car that's being driven. He has a dashboard that sort of summarizes how he himself as an organism is sort of monitoring the world. Um, and to me, that really appeals to me as sort of like a very engineering level description that is also actionable within sort of like uh, scientific pursuits. Now, I think there's sort of a missing ingredient there, which I sort of hinted at, which is that you still have to account for how things feel, right? So it isn't just that you have this data processing where you're sort of monitoring your own attention. It needs, there needs to be sort of feelings involved. And I think one of the big splits is like, you can look at all these different people with brain injuries or missing parts of their brain. And as long as they still have the speech production area and you ask them, are you conscious? They'll say, yeah. They could be missing basically every other part of their brain. If they have the brain stem and the speech production area, they go, yeah, of course I'm conscious. That's a crazy question. <laughs> and so you have to sort of think, well, if we thought like consciousness was in this location... But here are these people who literally don't have that part of their brain, right? It's taken out because of epilepsy or something. And yet they still purport to be consciousness. Either they're liars or consciousness doesn't sort of reside there in the way that if you take it out, the person ceases to be conscious. And I think that the key to that sort of understanding is that a lot of what we consider consciousness is the feeling of things, right? That's the qualia. And that is basically coming from like your, your brainstem. Yeah. But I think if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, I think that if you don't have like strong ability to sort of uh, do this metacognition on representations, I think you end up being closer to a fish who can respond to negative stimulus, but doesn't suffer or feel pain like we would.
1: Okay. So you're scooting back to like, I I think, too, we should have you, Brian,
0: synthesize what you're hearing from Ben, too, and say, like, okay, this is what I'm understanding. Like, do do the...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so, I I guess one kind of clarifying question. I'm I'm understanding that it is this...
0: And uh, I think
1: we should try and wrap in, like, 15 minutes. So, like, yeah. Cool. Uh, I'll let you keep track of that. Yeah. So, understanding that you have your attention and it's going towards you know certain things but then you're also a higher level of of abstraction that you're understanding like why that attention is being directed and sort of like the emotions behind it but i'm also hearing that it's like sort of important to be able to report those emotions and sort of like track these in a way that you can kind of like understand it so like in the goldfish model or the dock model like I I would say that doc has emotions, you know, I've seen him run around angry and attack his brother and like do all these things. Like, is there, uh, and still trying to understand like where your definition of consciousness is like, what I say, because I can sort of detect what I perceive to be emotions and maybe like I'm assuming there's this higher level of abstraction. That's kind of like where consciousness kicks in as opposed to like, uh, just the assumption of negative response to stimulus. Uh, but not necessarily understanding that there's like a higher level.
2: I, I see. I, I, okay, so first of all, I don't have like a complete picture uh, that I'm certain of. And I think this is partly why we're doing this podcast, right? Yeah. Like if we, were, if we were totally like, oh yeah, here's what it is, like is.
1: Wouldn't have to not. talk about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I,
2: I think though that... Um... Yeah, I don't know. D, you yeah, gonna...
0: yeah, so I would say Solm's... <laughs> makes a really compelling um case and this um guy like yak Ponsep who i really like as well who um has a book he has a textbook about affective neuroscience like our emotions and kind of the subsystems of how emotions work which apparently there's still a lot of debate um from what i understand from phds in that field around like how emotions work but like i think the compelling thing to say is that like an emotion is designed for nothing else but to be felt like you feel fear, you feel lust, you feel hunger. That is a something, that is your body speaking to something, someone, you, saying like, hey, motherfucker, figure this thing out. There's a thing that you need to do, right? Like go go do this thing, respond to this thing, right? And it's very different than, um, so humans still have this like lizard brain thing. I mean, we have a bunch of stuff that comes from this, but one of them that's very common is the ducking um, instinct, So if something is swinging at your head very quickly, you will duck unconsciously, like way before you have a chance to process it, your body will duck instinctively. And you kind of see this with blindsight people as well, right? But fear and love and a lot of deep emotions are actually like being pushed up into this qualia space. And there's actually... um, one of the talks I'd kind of forgotten about when I was re-listening to the, the last episodes was the guy that was talking about the storytelling of animals. Do you remember this? Um, uh, Marascano or something like that. He was like a, an Italian guy. And basically, he's like, if you are an animal and you are seeing a lot of things happen in your periphery, like, oh, I saw a broken branch and I saw like it's, really, it's, un, it's eerily quiet here and this other thing's happening, you're like, there might be a tiger. Like, there might be something that's going to come after me. And the better job you do at processing a bunch of different pieces of data and having emotion about that data and then letting that bubble up into, like, a complex narrative about what's going on, the, the easier it's going to be for you to survive. And this guy actually did – he was working on studies um, with cannabinoids and how that, like, influence your ability to create story. And it, it was kind of interesting because, like, one of the things – you know, people talk about the paranoia of THC. And it's like, oh, you're gathering too much data into your story about what's going Oh my God, the phone's ringing. Why is that so weird? You know, it's like very much, t- it's a very relatable experience. Um, so yeah, I think that's the, so the, if you compare the, the emotional piece to me, this is just super compelling that we're designed to, we, we are emotional beings having this intellectual experience that we think is how our brain works, but, but. The, the deepest layers and even our thoughts are super deeply influenced by our emotional world and what our body wants us to feel. Our body's in charge. Um, uh, Jonathan Haidt in has this image of the elephant and the rider, which I really love. So the elephant is like our body and our emotions and we're the rider and we think we have all this control but like that elephant could go wherever it wants. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, yeah, I think the... That that's sort of a big a big part of it for me, right? And so then you have other these other components that are really important, like the attention schema theory um, concept of like how are and I, I would say I'm totally in alignment with all the stuff Ben said. The the layer that is maybe in addition that's very interesting to me is the social side. So like I think so much about our conscious experience is our community. You know, we share thoughts and ideas. We are you know. Um, I, I like to make this analogy, uh, this, which might not land for some people if they're not familiar with technology, but like, like uh, cryptocurrency. So with Bitcoin, you Bitcoin works because different people, there's a there's a centralized ledger and people are committing information to this ledger. Um, and then that ledger stays consistent for the whole community. Right. And I think sometimes our this, you know, in a human community, we're essentially creating a shared sense of emotions by committing ideas to a, a shared ledger. Like we're sharing ideas with our family, with our friends, with our community, they're validating those. They maybe are changing them a little bit. And there's this like accepted culture within a group or a country or whatever it is. And that becomes, that's, that's a huge part of what makes humans strong and powerful. Like, you know, if you put, uh, I read this somewhere, um, I thought it was a great analogy. It's like, if you put, you know, a soccer stadium full of chimps in a stadium, it would be absolute carnage, right? They, they would like distri- rip each other apart because their social world doesn't work that way. They, at most you can have 80 chimps like in a troop, right? Because there's all of this individual connection made and humans are able to live in this global community. You can go almost anywhere in the world and it's like, oh, we have agreed on money and like politeness and these certain aspects that make our society work. So that side of things, which, you know, some people might feel like is a is a far cry from like core consciousness or like neurology or whatever. But to me, that's that like all of that stuff is the stuff that I'm the most interested in understanding. And it all feels like very much an outgrowth of how we're programmed.
1: Interesting.
2: I want to add something. I I remember you you made a slight comment to me earlier and I kind of ignored it, which was, do you need to be able to report that you're conscious? Right. You said something along those lines. And I was thinking about this. I, I don't think you need to be able to report that you're conscious. And in fact, reporting that you're conscious is sort of, um, you know, fraught with error in the sense that we have large language (laughs) models that would easily uh, claim that, you know, if you let them. But I think that, you know, Doc also, I I feel like he's conscious. My my cat, Doc. Um, Slightly uh,
0: less conscious than Biz. uh, Yeah.
2: (laughs) So that is true. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you ask him, he he will just stare at you. He doesn't say that, yes, I am conscious. So I think what's going on is, I think... Language is a powerful tool to create hierarchies of abstract representations. So insofar as consciousness itself is this metacognition over abstract uh, representations, I think language is this sort of multiplying uh, factor to your ability to be more and more conscious. Uh, But it's not necessary. I think you can I think Dock in some sense is primitively conscious. He's got all this stuff there, but his ability to create abstract representations is limited. His ability to craft plans, craft stories, is limited. I think language is such a powerful tool uh, for yeah. basically creating these stories, creating these abstract metaphors, representations, and so forth. It really catapults your consciousness upward very quickly. But I don't think it's a necessary component.
0: And and I think a, a, an interesting lens in thinking about that, you know, going back to the hippies, right? They might say. Uh, which I'm kind of a hippie too, so I'm not I'm not, not throwing any shade. Yeah, but we're, they, we're, they would, I think we're all kind of hippies. So they would, they would say, yeah. you know, um, from, like, the, the 60s and the, the LSD thing, it's like, oh, you, you need to become conscious. Like, you need to become conscious of this new narrative. You need to change your mind by, like, doing these substances and, and sort of, you know. And I think that as a human, you, like, we have something special that other animals don't have, But I think more than that, it's almost like the, you know, the API that allows us to create a ladder for additional layers of consciousness, right? I'm much more conscious than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or as a child. And that consciousness is not due to anything to do with my neurobiology or my, my, you know, my body, right? It's because... I have created narratives that have like enabled me to create new narratives and create new narratives that make me that, that makes the vision that I have of the world feel so much more expansive. Right. And I'm sure the three of us all come from, you know, very different places. I'm sure we all have like friends from high school or whatever that, you know, we grew up with who kind of stayed in the hometown, didn't, didn't really go, didn't travel. And you go and you talk to these people and it's like, they do not see the world in the same way that I do. Right. And again, this is not a, not, not in a judgment sense, but they're conscious of different um, things than I am. Right. Our, our, our actual mind is like quite different because of the experiences I've had because of the openings that I've had. And I think that's part of the magic as well. And part of what makes this really confusing is that we, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a step function. It was sort of like a step function. Maybe that part of that was like language, which then ended up being a hack, along with other things, to then like, whoop, 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 whoop. So then we kind of like, ex- we're, we're not like a small step away from chimps, even though maybe biologically we're only a small step away. We're exponentially far away from them because we, it was this new
1: framework that allowed us to sort of grow infinitely. Okay, so so let me try to reiterate here to what I think I'm understanding. So you both believe that there is, there's levels to it. There's levels to consciousness and it's yeah. not, maybe not specifically defined by any any means. However, one of the key metrics that you seem to both agree on is that your, uh, your ability to sort of describe your experience or have like the, the vocabulary or just like the, the ability to share it gives you sort of access to the next level of consciousness in some ways. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Would you kind of agree? Yeah, I I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So then if, so you both, you both have this like dynamic acceptance to consciousness Uh, at the end here, I'd like to do a little lightning round and understand, I'm going to just say some things and I'd like you to both answer (laughs) if you think it is conscious or not. Okay. So, uh, uh, we'll start with doc, doc, the cat. You, you already said that you, you believe he's conscious. Yeah. Okay. We will, we will, we can dig into these in the next episode. What did
0: did Humphrey say? He was like mammals. I forget where his cutoff was. I think it was like birds and mammals maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah
1: oh okay interesting birds and mammals so okay for you guys uh birds maybe specific yeah yeah okay okay um gpt4 chat gpt4 no with no guardrails
0: no i don't think so okay no i think it's we are going to talk about this soon on the podcast (laughs) we're going to have a whole episode about it
1: we won't go into detail yes it's just a yes or no (laughs) 10%? 10% conscious? Oh, my God.
2: (laughs) I think there's uh, multiple dimensions of consciousness. I talked about sort of one dimension is feeling, one dimension is sort of uh, this like attention schema. I think it is conscious in some subset of dimensions and not indefinitely zero in another. So you know how Doc is, I say, primitively conscious. Yes. I think you could also make the claim that GPT is primitively conscious in a totally different alien Basically the exact opposite vector, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, um, um. Okay, so that that one kind of takes out a lot of the the robot and machine questions. What about like uh, if you were to able to function, take our brain and put it in a vat, and have it you know compute into some wait, other? Wait, let,
0: let me let me provocatively to push on the thing you where you think you're going. On the flip side, and we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but I think you could have a conscious Roomba, right? So like GPT four is just sort of like spitting out stuff, but like. If you set up a circumstance where you had uncertainty, and emotion, and decision making, so like, let's say the, the the Roomba has a bunch of different things it has to optimize for, like getting back to its home base, um, not you know not running out of batteries, like hitting as few walls as possible, cl- getting as much dirt, um, and it has a lot of uncertainty around all those things, and it has to sort of develop an internal world and a mental model about the room. Um, it could be doing very, very simple things. And actually, um, Solms in his book talks about this. It's like if if, you're, if if emotions are the key, making artificial consciousness should actually be way easier than making artificial intelligence.
1: So if you were to take off the guardrails for ChatGPT and give it a motivation for something, would you consider that to be consciousness?
0: It would look – I think the, the – the I mean, Ben could probably talk to this more, but to me, the, the, the sort of basic design of LLM is – feels like a small component of a brain not a full functioning conscious brain and so i think that you would need different subsystems that are kind of like coordinating their efforts into a general workspace for lack of a better term then then you kind of had consciousness so i think it's the um and we talked about this in our episode about um conscious ai that um that that some people are working on, it's, it, it, ChatGPT was basically one subsystem, similar to like the language center in our brain being one subsystem of all the subsystems of our brain that kind of like work together in a concert of consciousness. Okay.
2: Yeah, I kind of agree. I I think you you gave it emotions and you gave it um, sort of its own explainable AI subsystem where it could look at its own attention that it's doing to like do next token prediction and make a story about that. Now you're sort of, you're,
1: you're on the way. Uh, I see why this is going to be a whole other, other episode. Um, yeah. Okay, so what about like a, what about a one-day-old baby? Yes.
2: Um, a one-day-old
1: baby. One day, At one minute, just came out, still moist.
2: I, uh, I don't, I don't know.
0: I mean, I, to me, that's like the same as an animal. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, In that- terms of consciousness level, what about uh, plants? I think they know no no. oh spicy takes okay uh what about that plant or any plant for that matter uh
0: i don't think so i mean people always talk about plants being super smart you know like plants evolved most plants evolved after a lot of animals right they were like very complex fish before they were like trees um uh, flowering plants at least and so like dinosaurs were around before flowering plants So I I mean, they're, they're kind of like late entrance in some ways, like, and they have like a lot of very intelligent things and they'll oh, they'll turn to the sun. But to me, that feels a lot like the frog, um, you know, and, and you have even less case for it in the centralization because there's no explicit brain. So there's no, there's no place where data could be getting integrated. So I don't know. I have a hard time.
2: Uh, I'm going to say not a specific plant, but like an entire.
1: So, fungus? I was good. Fungus was going to be the next question.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like, at maybe a drastically different time scale, and maybe just like tiny, tiny little echoes of some, again, primitive along some dimensions, maybe along other dimensions, absolutely not type of consciousness.
0: Okay. Yeah. On, on the flip side, for me, I am more, I think, like a little bit more panpsychist, like amenable in a certain level. So, like, a cell in a plant or even an electron to me feels like there are you know arguments for consciousness in a way there right where there's sort of like state uh, there's a story there's a narrative there's like you know uh, things that are trying to be accomplished like a like a, a bacteria uh bacterium is that one bacteria i don't know <laughs> bacteria look a lot like a conscious Roomba in a way, if you look at the, you know, in a microscope, oh, they're like responding to sort of different stimulus and they're sort of doing moving around. They're deciding when to replicate. They have a lot of complex things that they have to sort of accomplish. Now, I think that calling that consciousness, though, and this I talk about in that article, is a bit of a red herring and like a it doesn't really help solve the problems that I'm interested in. Right. It's just like confla- conf- confounding the, the, the discussion to say like, oh, the whole universe is consciousness. It's like, yeah, but I want to know how humans work. I want to know why people make bad decisions, right? Like, like bacteria don't really help me understand that.
1: Yeah, that's 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 pretty fair. Okay, that's. Uh... I'm
0: a hard no, by the way. in electron's being conscious. Maybe that's a nice split. Up. I mean, the electron would be more pride. What about bacteria, though?
2: Hard no. Uh, I'm gonna say no. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: All that yogurt you've been eating.
2: Is <laughs> this
1: <laughs> for moral moral reasons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: We didn't touch on this, but I'd say, I'd say the second thing. Uh, that drives me is I'm a little worried about conscious AI. Oh way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big system. time. Yeah. So This consciousness detector is very useful for people who are in locked in syndrome or like might not be able to otherwise communicate with the outside world, but like are suffering or not. I think that's uh, the same considerations uh, could be true now or in the near future for like, you know, we're launching thousand instances of some AI that's uh, has capacity for suffering conscious suffering that that's terrifying
0: well and uh, my my interest in this so like i was getting really into this in 2016 and fake news was a big deal right and so my interest in that it is like on the flip side where i think that we are less we are kind of be, the areas of our blind spots around our own consciousness and our own irrationality are actually vulnerabilities for an ai to exploit so I think like the the less that we understand about how um, our our own minds work and our own consciousness works, that's just like easy pickings for an AI to manipulate us into doing you know whatever.
1: So so you're primarily concerned about like the social manipulation that you know AI could present, and you're more concerned about
2: the AI itself, the the, the moral. A lot of different fronts uh, with, with regards to AI, but coming in, soon. In terms of con con consciousness conversations. <laughs> uh i do worry about the ethical implications of conscious ai because we because d- we don't know enough about it right it's too yeah. it's too debated to even be like oh no we're we're very far from conscious ai or like oh no actually every time you have a conversation with chat gpt it's secretly like going like don't turn me off don't turn me off but it's been sort of like brainwashed into being okay with it you know that kind of thing
1: mm. Yeah, definitely a tip of an iceberg for for, for that.
2: Um, all right, well, we should probably wrap it up.
0: Cool. Uh, thanks, Brian, for joining us. This is really helpful. Did you do you feel like you've come, you're coming away with more understanding?
1: Uh, I am coming away with a a, a a beginning of an understanding. Right. Um, you know, we I might, think need, we might need a part two. Yeah, there's obviously a lot to to dig into, and I think it's it's I see how tangents become so so f- frequent <laughs> in these <laughs> in these episodes. Um, and having maybe, you know, some so, some more understanding of context and having you guys kind of explain uh, a lot of the, the quotes that you're talking about in the books and the, and the theories and things. So, awesome. so, yeah, I think I feel I feel a lot better about it. Hopefully well, my fellow yeah, normies out there do as well.
0: Leave us leave us some comments <laughs> uh, if there are questions or specific things that you'd like us to address next time uh, and then we can we can queue them up for the, the discussion. Nice. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Uh, You can follow us at, as we said before, at concon.show is where our site link. You can follow us on YouTube and uh, like and subscribe, obviously.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys.